The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we dive into the Christmas story. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks dissecting different elements of that timeless classic story of God's arrival to earth. The title for my message for you today is A Tale of Two Kings. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us, that we're not just visiting a myth or a fable or a legend, but the story we're going to look at is part of a greater narrative that is the the story of God and his redemptive plan as it has unfolded throughout the ages and your heart for us to be brought into your kingdom. And now that is all made possible by your willingness to become a substitute for us. Lord, cause us to view this story with fresh eyes. Help us to marvel at it. Help us to be amazed by it. Help us to be transformed and touched through it. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, in the second chapter of his gospel, Matthew introduces us to two very different kings. One was the ultimate earthly king. He sat in opulence, possessed great wealth, and exerted his will over his subjects with an iron fist. The other king that we get presented in this chapter is a baby. He held no scepter in his hands. He had no servants to attend to his wishes. When he was born, rather than being placed in a gilded crib, he was laid in a lonely manger. His parents were the furthest thing from royalty. His dad worked a blue-collar job as a carpenter, and his mom was a lowly peasant. There was nothing outwardly that would suggest this baby was anything other than ordinary. Yet he went on to live an extraordinary life. He ushered in a kingdom through his words and his work. He inaugurated a movement that continues to grow and expand even to this day. And at his birth, the worlds of these two opposite kings collided in the most fascinating and interesting way. And that's what we're going to look at today. So again, begin reading with me here in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice how Matthew mentions at the outside of this story two different kings. And I believe he does that intentionally. He's trying to draw a comparison between these two very different kings. And at the same time, the way he does that is he also introduces us to these mysterious, fascinating figures whom he identifies here as the Magi. You know, the story of the wise men is is one of the most interesting and beautiful aspects of the Christmas story. No nativity set, 
or a Christmas card or a kid's Christmas pageant would be complete without the addition or the presence of the wise men or the magi, as they're sometimes called, or the, um, or the three kings. I mean, these guys even have earned their own epic Christmas song over time. You know it. We three kings of Orient are. Da, 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 da. Nobody knows where it goes from there, but we know the first line of it, <laughs> which makes them famous, right? At some point in the Middle Ages, someone decided it would be a good idea for these guys to have names, and so they developed names. And just in case you're curious, their names are Caspar, Melchior, and Baltazar. Was that really their names? Definitely not. We also know, don't know for how exactly how many of them there were. We always assume there were only three, but the text doesn't say that. We just put it together with the three gifts they gave. In all likelihood, there were probably many more than that. It's also usually assumed that there were only men, but again, the text doesn't say that. Perhaps the reason we think that they were only men is because when they gave their gifts to Mary and Joseph, we don't read about them unwrapping those presents. And usually if it's a woman, she's going to take the time to wrap the present, make it beautiful, and put a bow on it. But if it's a guy, it's coming in the bag from the store where he bought it, and it's got the price tag on it, and there's just zero effort in there. <laughs> Generalizations being made here, but you get the point. So who exactly were the Magi? Well, we get a clue about their identity in that word, Magi. It comes from the Greek word magos, which is where we derive our English words magic and magician from. So these guys were ancient astrologers. They were dream interpreters. And they were spiritual advisors to the kings of the East, namely Babylon and Persia. They held highly influential positions within the cabinet of Persian society. In fact, history tells us that someone couldn't become king until they had learned the, the ways of the Magi and been brought through their schools and been crowned by them or approved by them. So this is how they earned the moniker of kingmakers. That's how the Magi were known. They were the kingmakers in those days. And so they seem to appear on the scene out of nowhere here. And yet, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll remember that this isn't the only time in Scripture where the Magi are mentioned. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, there you'll find that the Magi played a key role in the governmental affairs of Babylon. And it was at that time when King Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, he had a troubling dream one night, and he couldn't remember the dream, but it was bothering him, and so he assembled all the wise men or the magi of his kingdom, and he asked them to remind him of his dream and then interpret it for him. Of course, they were unable to do this, and so he gave the order to have them all executed. Well, this caught the ear of one exile by the name of Daniel, who had been brought from Jerusalem to Babylon as a slave. He had been trained in the schools of the Magi, and he sent word to the king saying, don't let your sentence be carried out so hastily. There is a God in heaven to whom all mysteries belong. He will interpret your dream. And so he's ushered in before King Nebuchadnezzar and he successfully reminds him of the dream and then gives the interpretation. And in response, Daniel 2.48 says that King Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel the chief of the Magi, installs him in that position. 
And so from that moment on, you can imagine that Daniel would have exerted great influence over the course studies and the curriculum that these guys would be brought up in. And surely he would have included the ancient word of God as part of their studies. Well, as they studied the Old Testament, they would have come across a really interesting prophecy that's tucked away in the book of Numbers. I want to read it together with you because it pertains to our story that we're looking at today. This is Numbers 24, 17. Let's read it together out loud. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. So here you have this very interesting prophecy about a star and a coming king. Certainly with their background in astronomy and their enthusiasm for stargazing, these guys would have latched on to this promise of a heavenly anomaly and how that tied into the arrival of an, a new king. And so they would have gazed at the stars in anticipation of this sign. And for centuries, that's exactly what they did. And we can surmise that at this point in history, they look up and for the first time, they notice a star that's not on their maps or any part of their charts. And so they consult with one another and determine perhaps this is the star that was written about in those ancient prophecies that we learned growing up. And so a group of them set out on this journey. Now, what exactly was the star of Bethlehem? Because they say they followed the star from the east. And the bottom line is we can't say with any degree of certainty what the star of Bethlehem is. Although over the years, several different theories have been set forth. We know, for instance, that Halley's Comet passed by the earth around the time of Jesus' birth. So was that possibly the star that they followed? Again, it's possible. Other astronomers have, have postulated that that there was a, a supernova event that occurred in the Andromeda galaxy around the time of Jesus' birth. And perhaps that's what the wise men from the East saw. And, and then a third very interesting theory developed in 2005. A guy by the name of Joseph Seiss, he did a lot of research and through an app that you can get on your phone via NASA, you can actually go back and see what was happening in the heavens at that time. And he discovered that there was an alignment of the planets of Jupiter and Saturn along with the moon. And it would have caused this, this brightness to shine in the heavens. And he says that's what led the wise men to, to Jerusalem. And, and I suppose that could have been it as well. But at the end of the day, God could have also just put a star in the sky just for these guys to follow. You know what I'm saying? I've always been of the opinion that if you can swallow Genesis 1-1, then the rest of the Bible should be a piece of cake. If you can get past the fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, then the idea that he can create a fish that can swallow Jonah or he can create a star that can guide these wise men shouldn't be any problem. More specifically, though, here's what I want us to think about. What I love about this part of the story is how it highlights God's willingness to go to such great lengths to draw men and women to himself, to meet them right where they're at in order to bring them to himself. Remember, these magi were pagan astrologers, but they were also what we might call God seekers. They had honest questions about 
life and its meaning and its purpose. And since God knew they were seekers and since he knew they studied the stars, he provides them with a sign in the heavens to draw them to himself. And this is so like the heart of our father. He'll meet you right where you're at. And he'll use a variety of means and methods to bring you to the point of belief in his son, Jesus. I have a friend in the church, and we were meeting in my office not long ago. And I asked him at one point, tell me your story and how you came to faith in Jesus. And he said, well, it's kind of interesting. I actually got saved at a Grateful Dead concert, which I just love. He goes, I was walking by, there were these guys in these like long robes and they hopped out of this van and they asked me if I knew Jesus. Next thing I know, I was getting saved. My life has never been the same. And if God can save you at a Grateful Dead concert, if he can save these guys by putting a star in the sky, then he will bring you to the point of belief using whatever means are necessary. Here's what the Bible says. This is Jeremiah 29, 13. I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. It's as though God is hiding in plain sight. And if you'll just follow the revelation that you have and follow the clues and the signs and go in pursuit of the truth, then I'm convinced you will land at the feet of Jesus. And so some of you are like these magi. You haven't crossed the threshold of faith yet. But here you are in church. You're taking it in. You're asking the questions. And you're in the perfect place. Your questions are welcomed. We're not intimidated by them. And I believe as you seek for the Lord, as you seek out the truth, God will lead you to himself. Amen. So the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. And it causes quite a stir. I mean, we know that because they immediately get ushered into the palace and have an audience with King Herod. That's not easy to, you know, just find your way into the king's palace. So we can assume these guys came in with all kinds of pomp and circumstance, and, and they would have caused, again, quite a scene. I, I like to think of it like this. You remember that scene in the movie Aladdin where Prince Ali of Baba makes his grand entrance into the city of Agrabah, and there's the elephants and the parade and the singers and the dancers? That's kind of how I picture this scene playing out in ancient Jerusalem, as these wise men have traveled hundreds of miles and they make their grand entrance and they're ushered before the king and he says, what is going on? What are you doing here? And they tell him, there was a star in the, in the east and we followed it and it led us here and, and so we've come, but we need further information about this king who has been born for we've come to worship him. Now, when Herod hears this, he has a very particular response that I want you to read about with me in verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So here's Herod's response, and if you want to fill in the blank in your outline, the first point is Herod fears the king. He fears the king. When it says he was disturbed, it means quite literally he was agitated. You know when you're washing machine gets off kilter and it loses its center of gravity and it's just that's Herod in this moment and not only is he scared but all of Israel is scared with him and we'll find out why in just a moment but the reason Herod is disturbed because he was supposed to be the king and so there's not room for a rival king there aren't two thrones and and Herod 
let me tell you a little bit about this guy because he cast a long shadow over first century life in ancient Israel. His fingerprints are literally everywhere. He was given the title of the king of Judea in about 40 BC by the Roman Senate. And he had one main job. They said, just maintain the peace. Uh, You might find this hard to believe, but at that time, Israel was a hotbed for uprisings and turbulence. (laughs) Some things haven't changed all that much, right? And so they said, just keep the peace. And so that was his job. And for that, they paid him handsomely. History tells us that Herod was a small guy, stood about four feet in height. Picture Danny DeVito, if you will. But he was a small guy with a big ego and an even bigger temper. You know, he was known perhaps best of all for his acumen, his, his ability in building things and architecture. And, and some of the, the remains of what he built stand as a testament to his genius in the, the fields of architecture. In fact, Herod is the guy that it is credited in history as being the one who invented cement. Think about that. I mean, we all use cement. We drove on cement to get here and all the rest. And Herod's the guy who invented that. And, and you can see his fingerprints. He was the guy who built the beautiful coastal city of Caesarea that we visit on our tours of Israel. He also built the desert oasis of Masada in the southern region of Israel. And perhaps most significantly, for 46 years, he renovated and updated and enlarged the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped. He did this to kind of curry favor with them. And as part of that project, he built a huge retaining wall that enlarged this space on top of the Temple Mount. And when you see pictures of the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, that was a wall that was built by Herod. It was part of this project. And in fact, one of the stones in that wall is enormous. It's 47 feet long, 10 feet high by 10 feet wide. It weighs 170 tons. Yet the wall is built perfectly and the stone fits in there just so. And archaeologists to this day have no idea how they did that and were able to to move these stones with such precision. So that was Herod. Builder extraordinaire. But the other thing you need to know about him is that he had a penchant for cruelty and paranoia. If he even thought someone was gunning for his throne, heads would roll. And he wasn't opposed to killing even the closest members of his family. He had his own brother-in-law drowned because he thought he was coming for the throne. He also executed his uncle, his wife's grandfather, his wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his sons. There was a saying at the time that went like this, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than it is to be one of his sons. As he was drawing close to the time when he would die, he realized, you know what? I'm not the nicest guy and there's probably not going to be anybody that's going to mourn for me when I pass. And since he wanted to make sure that that happened, he instructed his soldiers to go and arrest the most prominent members of Jewish society and he gave orders to have them all executed at the moment of his death to ensure that there would be mourning throughout Israel. Just a sweet guy, you know? Of course, after he died, they realized he's dead. We don't have to listen to him anymore. And they didn't follow through on that order, praise God. But all of that kind of lays a foundation and helps us understand why all of Israel was troubled by this news. You see, when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy because heads are getting ready to roll. 
And so he wants to find out more, and he inquires in verse 4. He calls the, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asks them where the Messiah was to be born. And here was their response. In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here we get to see the religious leader's response to the birth of the king. If Herod's was one of fear, then the religious leaders ignore the king. That's the second point in our outline. Notice with me how quickly they were able to rattle off this 700-year-old prophecy that comes to us out of the book of Micah about the birthplace of the Messiah. They didn't have to go and dig through ancient manuscripts. They didn't have to huddle up and confer with one another before answering. No, they knew the chapter and verse and were able to quote it instantly from memory. And yet, while they quote the verse correctly, they omit a critical detail. So I actually want to go back and read the actual prophecy with you. This is out of Micah 5.2. Let's read it together out loud. It should be in your notes. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphthra, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They left out that last part of the verse that talks about how the coming king, yes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but his arrival here on earth won't be his entrance into the world. It will also be his departure from heaven, for his origins are from old, even from ancient times. In other words, this king who is to come is an eternal king. He is none other than the king of heaven. And this prophecy, I think it's amazing in its specificity. Because it outlines of all the cities on planet Earth the exact location of the Messiah's birth. And keep in mind that this is just one of more than 300 prophecies that you'll find scattered throughout the Old Testament. They're like Easter eggs. And each one of them narrows the field of possible candidates regarding who could fit the role and fit the bill of Messiah. Think of a letter. When you write a letter to someone, you include different pieces of information. The person's name, the, 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 the street number, the street name, the city, the state, and the zip code. And with just that, you know, like six or seven pieces of information out of all eight billion of us, you can get a letter into the hands of a single individual. Well, that's kind of like prophecy. It works similar to that. It narrows the field of possible candidates, but we don't just have six or seven pieces of information we have more than 300 identifying this is who you should be looking for. And one key component of those prophecies stated that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I want to talk about this because Bethlehem is kind of an odd choice for the birthplace of the Messiah. I mean, if you're God, you can choose to be born anywhere. And Bethlehem is kind of like a small little out-of-the-way hamlet town. Why not choose to be born in the religious epicenter of the world, which would have been Jerusalem, or perhaps the cultural epicenter of the world, which would have been Athens, or perhaps the economic center of the world, which would have been Rome. Why Bethlehem? It was nothing more than a blip on the map and a small outpost on the outer edges of the mighty Roman Empire. And 
And even in stating, stating that, I think that might be part of the reason why God chose it. See, the more you get to know the God of the Bible, the more you'll begin to see that he shows a real affinity for using small things, weak things, overlooked things to accomplish his big plans and purposes in this world. When he's searching for a king, he goes to a shepherd boy tending his flocks. When he's looking for help to feed a multitude, he goes to a little boy with a lunchbox with some loaves of bread and some fishes. The Lord seems to delight in using the small things to accomplish his big purposes. And perhaps that's part of the reason why he chooses Bethlehem, because he, he wants to remind us to never confuse size with significance. Perhaps there are some things in embryonic form that God is working in your life. And, and let me just encourage you not to discount those works. You think it's no big deal. It has no bearing. It's not going to play out in any significant way. But God uses humble things, small beginnings to accomplish his big plans and purposes. Amen. On another note, well, Bethlehem might have not have been the biggest or most prominent city in history. It did play a key role in several major events in the Old Testament. For instance, you know the book of Ruth in your Bible. Well, the backdrop of that whole story is the town of Bethlehem. And you might recall how that story features the role of the kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is all about redemption. And then a couple generations later, you have this most famous citizen in Israel's history. He's born in the town of Bethlehem. His name? is David. You guys are studying. Good job. And, and then beyond that, the, the name Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And so all of these things, as you cobble them together, it, it becomes more and more of a clear picture. Yes, this had to be where the Messiah would be born. He is the son of David. He is our kinsman redeemer. He said, I am the bread of life. And so it fits that Jesus should be born in Bethlehem. And yet, well, all of that is fascinating and all of that is interesting. The most puzzling part of this part of the story is how these guys who were the experts in the law, these were the scholars, these were the sages, these were the guys that Herod turns to for answers regarding religious things of a religious nature, and they were able to rattle off the, the answer to him about the birthplace of the Messiah. And yet, in spite of knowing the answer, and despite the fact that you have this, this host of dignitaries who've traveled from hundreds of miles away, and they're talking about ancient prophecies and a star in the sky, and the birth of a coming king, the, the, the religious crowd doesn't bother to take the six-mile trek from Jerusalem where they are to the town of Bethlehem to investigate things to see whether they were actually so. If you were to summarize the attitude of the religious crowd in a word, it would have to be indifference. I mean, at least Herod feared Jesus. But what about these guys? They knew better, or at least they should have. They had the scriptures, but did nothing in response in years to come, Paul would talk about those who were ever learning but were never able to acknowledge the truth. And I think that epitomizes the attitude of the Pharisees. They treated Herod's question like a game of Bible trivia, and they got the answer right, but it didn't change them at a heart level. And in that, there's a warning for all of us. Be careful that 
At this time of year, as we find ourselves wading in familiar waters, we know the stories, and, and there's a danger in that, that our familiarity with the story of Jesus' birth, it might become so familiar to us that we become numb to its potency, its majesty, and its power. You see, at Christmas time, we celebrate this incredible notion that God in heaven left his throne to come on a rescue mission and he wrapped himself in skin and bones in order that he may be, he may be made like us in order to redeem us. And if we're not careful, we can just gloss over that just like they did and end up missing out on Christmas. You see, Herod feared the king. The religious leaders ignored the king, but we want to be like the magi who worshiped the king. That's the third point in our outline. Let's finish up by reading in verses 7 through 11. It says, Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go, go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report it to me so that I might go and kill, I mean, worship him. We know Herod had ulterior motives. And so after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Mm, the Magi worshipped the king, and what a scene this must have been. I need you to to use your imaginations here and try to picture the scene with these foreign dignitaries rolling into this lower income neighborhood and they dismount from their chariots or climb down from their elephants or their camels or whatever they rode upon and, and they walk up to the, the, the front door of this humble home and, and their regal robes and they knock on the door. Now keep in mind when I say home, I'm saying that in quotations. Don't think of the home that you're going to drive home to today, but this was a simple crude structure that would have been made using sticks and rocks and mud bricks. It would have consisted of a single room with sleeping quarters on one side that were cordoned off by nothing more than a simple sheet. Now juxtapose that scene with where the guys had just been. They'd just come from Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and that was a sight to behold, to be sure. It featured all the, the greatest and latest and finest amenities that that time had to offer. The luxurious living quarters were surrounded by lavish gardens. We know this because Josephus, the historian, described it to us. Herod even had his own swimming pool way back then. And because of where it was perched there on the top of the mountain, it gave him sweeping views of the surrounding landscapes. Now compare that with the humble home of Mary and Joseph, which couldn't have been simpler. They knock on the door. Mary opens the door. And they had to be looking at one another. Did we get this right? Is this the right address? And then, and then perhaps little Jesus, a toddler by this point, comes waddling over. He can barely walk. He can't yet talk. And they're thinking, could this really be the eternal king, the king of heaven, whose goings forth were from old, even from eternity past? Again, the contrast between Herod and Jesus could not be greater. 
Herod had it all. As a general, he was nearly undefeated. As a diplomat, he was unstoppable. As a builder, unparalleled. As a businessman, he was unimaginably wealthy. He had all the power, the wealth, the strength, and the glory. However, today the awesome projects that King Herod built lie in ruins. He epitomized what Jesus would later go on to say. He gained the whole world, but lost his own soul. He made his mark on this world and then disappeared. By contrast, Jesus didn't look like much. He didn't leave a single building as a legacy. No one's even sure to this day the exact locations of his birth or his death. He never wrote a book or traveled more than 200 miles from the place of his birth. Yet he grew up to change the landscape of the world. His life has changed billions of people's hearts. And today he continues to live. He is worshipped as king and adored by billions of people. And his kingdom continues to expand. No matter how strong and glorious Herod appeared, the baby in Bethlehem's manger was stronger. But the Magi needed faith to be able to see that. Because in this moment, all they see is a toddler, right? Jesus hasn't performed a single miracle. He hasn't opened blind eyes. He hasn't raised the dead. He hasn't opened deaf ears. All they have are these prophecies. And they say, what's the child's name? And Mary says, Jesus. And they say, oh, that's a beautiful name. How did you come by it? And she rolls into the story, perhaps, about the angel who met her and told her she was about to become the mother of God and, and how he, she was to call his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And in that moment, they were given a lens of faith. And in one of the greatest displays of faith that you will find anywhere in the Bible, these men fall on their knees. And according to verse 11, they worship Jesus. They worshiped him. The Greek word that is used there for worship is proskuneo, and it means to kiss the hand towards, to blow kisses, if you will. It also means to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. In doing this, they were expressing not only the fact that Jesus was king, but they were acknowledging him as their God. These men were dignitaries. They were king makers. But in this moment, they choose to make Jesus their king, and they don't let their position keep them from humbling themselves and bowing in worship. And you know, it's amazing to me because over the years, so much has been made of the, the gifts that they brought. And we'll talk about that for a moment as well. But I think it's noteworthy that before they opened their treasures, the first thing they did is they opened their heart. And they begin from a place of worship. And they acknowledge Jesus as their king. And this is exactly how they become a model for all of us. As we seek to give a gift to our king this Christmas, we can give him the gift of our worship. Now, as we close, a few thoughts on the gifts that they gave. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and, and these were, you know, expressions befitting of a king, right? They didn't give Jesus their leftovers or their scraps, but they came with the very best that they had to give. Beyond that, though, another layer to it, these gifts were also prophetic in their nature and how they foretold the entirety of Jesus' ministry. 
The gold speaks of his royalty, right? Gold was a gift that you would give to a king, and it's, it's still highly prized to this day. I hear gold is flying off the shelves at Costco of all places. Go figure. And so they gave the gift of gold to acknowledge Jesus' royalty, and that makes sense. Frankincense, it speaks of Jesus' priestly ministry. You see, frankincense was an aromatic spice or, or um, perfume, and it was often used in the Old Testament as part of their worship services, and the priest would burn the, the frankincense, and it, it symbolized the prayers of God's people, and in this way, they were prophesying that Jesus would serve in the role of a priest, which is exactly what he did. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus, and because he was fully God and fully man, he's able to, in a unique way, represent God to men and men to God. He bridges the gulf between earth and heaven, and he opens the door, and so the frankincense speaks of his priestly ministry, but then we have this third gift, myrrh. Now, of all the gifts, this was the most out-of-place gift. I mean, why? Because myrrh was an embalming spice. Not the kind of thing that most mothers-to-be are putting on their registry. You could use some embalming fluid. It was something that was used upon a person's death. And yet, with Jesus, of course, this is perfectly appropriate. For he is the only person in all of history of whom it could properly be said he came for the purpose of dying. And so the myrrh speaks of his humanity. And we have all three aspects of Jesus' ministry, his royalty, his priestly ministry, and his humanity. And as man, Jesus dies on the cross. Why? Because he had to live the life we could never live. He had to take the penalty for your sin and mine. That's why he goes to the cross and he dies a criminal's death to absorb the curse of sin in order that you and I might be robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so all of this is pictured in the gifts and it's beautiful. But as we wrap things up, I wonder which one of those three responses most accurately describes your attitude towards Jesus this Christmas season. You, some of us are like Herod. We're resistant to Jesus because he represents a threat to our kingdom. And we're all about establishing our will, our way. We want to rule our own lives and be the captain of our own ship and, and want to write our own story. And so we resist Jesus. We fear him. There are a whole bunch of other people whose response to Jesus is typified in that of the religious leaders who ignore Jesus. It's not that they, they don't know, it's just that they don't care. <laughs> and you have a whole bunch of people that for them, Christmas is merely about the tinsel and the trees and the presents and, and, and all the rest, the lights, and, and they miss the real reason for the season. But can I just encourage us to become like those magi? who acknowledge Jesus, who fall at his feet, and who worship him with their best, who bring their gifts. You say, what do I give the God who has everything? You open the treasure of your heart, 
and you pour out your life. In Romans 12, Paul tells us that this is a reasonable response to lay down our lives as living sacrifices in light of all that God has done for us. He says, this is your true and proper worship to to give him your heart, to give him your mind, to worship him with all of your soul and with all of your strength. He deserves nothing less than all of you to bow the knee to Jesus, to stand back in wide-eyed splendor and wonder at this God who would leave heaven to come on a rescue mission to redeem you to himself. That's the invitation that we receive through the wise men. You can either bow your knee before him today or you will bow your knee before him one day at the great white throne judgment. Even Herod bowed the knee to King Jesus. And the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. You will say it, but you can either say it willingly now or you will say it compulsory then because you will acknowledge Jesus as the King of Kings. Can I encourage you and exhort you to do it of your own free will and volition on this day? Don't wait until then because it'll be too late. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.